1: Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl.
0: And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein.
1: Rick, we're not going to have one guest today. We're going to have two. We're going to be talking in the second half of the podcast uh, exclusively uh, with Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. A lot to talk to him about. And we're going to talk to Frank Luntz, uh, who has done a lot of work. polling, language, and can tell us just how deep a hole Republicans are in right now. They sure seem to be in a deep hole if you look at the polling. Uh, That's what we have. But Rick, first of all, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like we had Joe Biden not only effectively out on the campaign trail with a major speech, but also, believe it or not, answering questions from real live reporters, including our own Mary Bruce.
0: Yeah, I can confirm that that's true, and I also can confirm that what the president said, that he received the questions in advance, is false. That didn't happen. I know that because Mary's question wasn't given to them <laughs> in advance. I mean, what uh, an absurd
1: I, thing, by the way. It, I mean, it, can yeah, we please... It, it, Okay.
0: it's to me it's it's an effort to, to try to undermine trust in the press uh, and and suggest maybe the debate moderators down, down the line are going to be helping biden out it, but it's totally reckless it's totally irresponsible. and it is flat out not true not true not true um, but I, I what I thought was intriguing about the Biden appearance in addition to being the first time in a couple of months that he took questions is that he was really starting to turn the whole trump playbook uh, against him, and he 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 was willing to one up the president uh, on this whole idea of being absent. It was Biden saying, "It's you are the one who's absent. Your leadership has not been there. Uh, you're the wartime president. You you waved the white flag," he says. And going there with when it comes to mental ability, something that the 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 the, the president has been pretty explicit on. Biden's basic thing is, uh, "Hey, bring that on too."
1: So let's let's go through a couple of quick. Uh, uh, excerpts from the speech first of all he addressed this question of, of the obviously the president's credibility and the president has called himself a cheerleader to explain why sometimes he put uh, the best spin on things when it when when that spin was well not exactly true we don't need a cheerleader
2: mr president we need a president mr president a president who will level with the american people the president will tell us the unvarnished truth president will listen to the experts
1: follow the science allow them to speak president will lead so uh, you know before we go to more biden do you mind if i just take a quick detour into what we also heard uh from mike pence he's been out there he was out there again uh yesterday uh talking about um uh you know this this alarming increase in coronavirus cases around the country alarming increase in hospitalizations um, really bad signs, many bad signs, a warning from Anthony Fauci uh, that we could get to the point where we have 100,000 new coronavirus cases a day. Uh, so this is this is kind of what Pence, how, how he was assessing the current situation as being in a better place.
0: The American people deserve to know that we're in a much better place today. Uh, thanks to the whole of government approach, the whole of America approach that President Trump initiated at the very outset, of the coronavirus.
1: Now, that is like exhibit A and exactly what Biden's talking about, and, and I mean, it's really, it's, it's nothing new about Mike Pence. I mean, first of all, he's used that whole of government, whole of America approach, I don't know how many thousands of times since uh, since February, late February, uh, when he took over the coronavirus task force. But the effort every time he steps before a microphone and every time the president steps before a microphone, television cameras, is to talk about how great everything is.
0: And and, and 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 as you've seen the president's not really speaking much before the cameras at all and it does I mean we often we talk about the audience of one and and how important it is for the vice president standing to to be in good stead with the president but that's just not an accurate portrait of where the country is right now um, celebrating the advances and 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 how great the country is doing it's not it's not the reality it's also not what people are feeling we're just not seeing that we're in, in polling, either that people are particularly optimistic about this moment. Uh, if anything, we've seen it in our polling that people think we're moving too quickly, not too slowly to reopen.
1: Now, there was a time in March and April when the president was talking every single day about this, talking about the invisible enemy, and even at one point calling himself a wartime president, does not feel vis a vis coronavirus like a wartime president right now. And that is another thing uh, that Biden hit and hit pretty hard in his speech.
3: Now, it's almost July,
1: and it seems like our wartime president has surrendered, waved the white flag, and left the battlefield. Today, we're facing a serious threat, and we have to meet it. So, uh, you know, there he is. He's putting it out there. Uh, But I I thought, Rick, that one of the uh, more interesting moments came as he got to the end of the part of this where he took questions from the press. And... He kept on saying, well, his his, his, uh, his handlers kept trying to cut it off, and Biden kept on saying, one more question. Okay, one more question. And the final question came from a reporter for Fox News, uh, which um, went there on, on the, the, basically the central one. The, I, I don't know if there is a central allegation that the Trump campaign has really settled on, but one of them uh, is this notion that Biden has somehow lost it. So this is how he addressed the question. The question was put in, in a way of saying, have you taken a cognitive test to show that you, uh, you know, I guess still have the cognitive ability to be president of the United States? All, you, all I got to do is watch me and I can hardly wait to compare my cognitive capability to the cognitive capability of the man I'm running against. That was actually a pretty sharp answer, Rick.
0: It was. It was. And it, and it suggests game on when it comes to uh, the vice president. He's missed it. He, he, it's like he, he has been itching to get back at it and you couldn't pull him away from the Q&A session. I know in talking to, to Trump folks in the aftermath, they've been looking for the gaffe. They've been looking for something to glom onto because um, th- their feeling was this was Biden coming out of the basement, that metaphorical basement we've been talking about and delivering, you know, pretty strong, a st- pretty strong rebuke and a pretty strong preview. And, John, I think we've got uh, a, f- a special friend who's uh, who's uh, joining us uh, right friend now, of the podcast? Getting, getting getting word that uh, that uh, we've got a call in.
1: Uh, is this Frank Luntz? Uh, Frank, how are you? Thanks for joining
2: us. It's a very interesting time. It's, I've never been through a time like this before, and I can't think of two guys I'd rather talk to than you all.
1: Interesting and somewhat ominous time. Uh, I wanted to, we wanted to check in with you quickly on the on the state of the race, both in terms of the uh, the presidential race and also uh, down ballot House and Senate. It, it sure seems in, in, in the polling like the president is digging a, a has dug a very deep hole, uh, a hole that may be hard for, It's a long way away, four months, hard for him to get out of, but uh, uh, perhaps also hard for Republicans in the House and Senate. But I was struck by a tweet he had recently, uh, simply one of these all caps tweets saying the lone warrior. That does not sound like a great tagline for a campaign trying to win a majority.
2: It's not, and you're correct. And he used the word warrior to describe his supporters five times in Tulsa. And his supporters don't consider themselves warriors. They consider themselves hardworking taxpayers. And it'd be much more effective for him to do something that people who are independent, people who are moderate, would identify with. And I think it's all a part of this hyped-up, overly aggressive messaging that is causing him to drop in swing states across the country. I'll give you another example, John. Law and order. When people hear the phrase law and order, I know that Nixon used to use it. But that was 50 years ago and people see cops beating up protesters on the street and they don't want that. They do want public safety. They do want to be able to walk around their neighborhoods. The president talked about the silent majority when the public wants someone to represent them, to speak for them, to be their voice as Trump talked about in in his convention speech in 2016. Dominate the streets. All of this language that he's using, by the way, safe and secure streets is what the public wants. All of this language is language that is over-caffeinated, language that's in your face, language that he may want to push, but it is not helping him. And in fact, I can show you in poll after poll, survey after survey, in Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, 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 Ohio, North Carolina, Florida, in swing state after swing state, Trump has dropped five points, 10 points, and it's his own fault. It's not that they're turning against him because of what he's doing. They're turning against him because of what he's saying. He's actually, for someone who had a reputation for being a reasonably good communicator, John, he's communicating horribly over the last couple months.
1: So let me ask you... Uh, a, a basic question, two part question. How worried are Republicans that you're talking to, uh, House and Senate, trying to trying to you know keep control of the Senate, trying to keep stem the losses uh, in in the House? How worried are they that they're getting dragged down by the president?
2: And the second part of that question is, how worried should they be? Well, as you know, I'm meeting with Democrats as well as Republicans, and I hear the same thing. They think. That having all three branches of government in their control is not just within the realm of possibility, but it's now theirs to lose. That it is unlikely for Republicans to capture more than five seats in the House and in the Senate that the Democrats now think, I've been in a couple of Democratic offices, that they now think they've got at least a 50-50 shot of capturing the, uh, the Senate as well. And in states that Republicans have to win the Senate races, they're up for grabs in the presidential race. If Donald Trump does badly in Arizona, that's going to hurt the Arizona Senate candidate. If he does badly in Montana or badly in North Carolina, these are all states that are swing states potentially for the presidential, maybe not Montana, but definitely for the Senate. And I'd say right now there's a 50-50 shot of Democrats winning the Senate.
0: It's obviously been a terrible spring and and early summer for President Trump under any objective measurement of the polls, you know, also in the anecdotals and, you know, the the stories that we've done and others have done talking to former Trump supporters about um, why they're turning against him and turning to Joe Biden, even if it's if it's somewhat reluctantly. But what's your sense of how uh, how permanent the damage is or how temporary it may be? I mean, three months, four months, a long time. Um, four months ago, the president's reelection prospects looked a heck of a lot different than they do right now. Do you sense anything that he has said that is on his permanent record that voters may not be able to forgive once a, a fight is fully engaged with Joe Biden? Well,
2: I think that the conventions are not going to be the panacea that Trump expects them to be. And it's not going to hurt Joe Biden if he accepts his nomination virtually that the conventions are for the partisans, the conventions are for the political elite, the people who listen to your podcast and those who are already decided whom they're gonna vote for. I think that the debates are gonna be absolutely essential and that Donald Trump can come back, even if he has a 10-point disadvantage. If Joe Biden performs bad, badly in the debate and if Donald Trump can change his language can soften it and show empathy and understanding for the... Wait a
1: minute, that's that's a massive John, if, Frank. I got hold to on. stop yes, you there. Yes, yes, I, mean, I agree what,
2: with I mean. that. But but what I'm saying, John, is that it's within the realm of possibility and it's within the president's control. Right now, if you held the election today, Joe Biden is, is the next president. And, and we all agree on that, and it's clear. And I don't care what they say about the polls in 2016... They were not as inaccurate as Trump people think they were. The fact is that the average real clear politics number in 2016 had Hillary Clinton winning nationwide by 2.9%. What did she end up winning by? 2.1%. That's only 1% off. That's not only within the margin of error. That's really accurate. 0.8% is accurate. But they didn't have the state-by-state's. And that's why all the major pollsters are now doing these swing state polls. But I think what happens in, in the debates is that Trump would actually have to have a, and I don't, I don't know how to say this and not be insulting, and I do not wish to be, but he's going to have a, a, a brain a, a brain fart, a senior moment. I don't know what the phrase is, but if he has two of them, not one, because one everybody has over a 90 minutes when you know that there are 50 or 70 million people from across the globe watching you. You can go down. You can forget what you're going to say. But if Biden were to have two of them within a 90-minute debate uh, and Trump were to challenge him on it, you could see a flip in the
0: election. Frank, you mentioned something interesting a, a, a little bit earlier about how voters view themselves and, and the, the sense of what these words, what the terminology means. And I'm wondering if there's something about this unique moment that makes that even more important. The fact that this is um, the, the crisis of COVID-19, the uh, the economic collapse that surrounds that, the uh, the national reckoning over race relations. These are things that people are living and seeing and breathing. This is not some abstract thing. This isn't a, the a war um, that that for the most part is fought by others, um, or you know, it's, it's not even you know a, a regional economic uh, uh, collapse. This is around the country. Everyone is feeling this in the same way, and I, I just wonder with the president that's so used to being able to define his own realities, how that plays into it. The fact that Americans feel this and are in this, um, if not together, uh, th- they are sharing the experience of these unbelievably huge crises.
2: And, and that's why I've always been impressed with your analysis. Because you identified the three moments that we are having. You've identified what Trump does not seem to be empathizing with. Any one of these would not just be the story of the year. It would be the story of the half decade. Having two of them would be the story of the decade. Having all three of them combined, this is the most significant year since 1968. This is the greatest trauma that this country has faced since then. And when you have an economic trauma, when you have a socio uh, social trauma, and you have a healthcare trauma, all three of them, arguably, this is more significant than the eight. And I do not believe that Donald Trump knows how to communicate that. And again, this is not a focus on policy. I'm a language guy, I'm a communications guy. And he doesn't get that people are afraid. And I remember in the press conferences, and John, you used to take an awful lot of abuse from the president. He would would rip into you repeatedly. But I don't think he understood that the questions you were asking are questions that the American people were asking. Where are we going to be a month from now, six months from now? Is my family in jeopardy? Is my job in jeopardy? Is my community in jeopardy? These are legitimate questions that he felt he didn't need to answer or he would just dismiss them. And that put him on the wrong side of the public. And he's going to have, by the way, if he doesn't change, if he says, I'm going to do it my way because I won in 2016, you all were wrong about me. You all, you all did not see what I see or did not hear what I hear. If he does that, then I think that we are headed to a historic loss. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you're going to pull me on the week after the election and say, Frank, why did you not see Trump's comeback? But unless he changes his tone, he's going to need one hell of a comeback uh, come October. Frank, before you go, one last
1: question on Biden. Um, There's an argument, uh, and it's arguably the way he's uh, run his campaign so far, although there have been other factors. There's an argument... That when you have somebody who is doing you run against who has done exactly what you have described, uh, and who is beating himself and beating himself effectively, that you know Biden might as well basically lie low and watch Donald Trump implode and win election that way, and and do every all he can to stay out of it and let this be a referendum on 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 Donald Trump. There's another argument which I've made to Rick and uh, I'll make now that. Um, that he, Biden should be out there and he should be out there more and he should be engaging with the press. He should be taking – he should be doing what he did yesterday uh, frequently, uh, taking questions. He should be doing interviews. He should be doing interviews with people uh, that are not just friendly but are going to ask tough questions. I'd, I'd, I'd put him on Fox News um, because first of all, uh, he, he's he got to be on, on – on, uh, he's got to be at the top of his game. Going into uh, going into the fall, he is going to have we expect three debates with Donald Trump. You got to be used to it. You got to be out there. You got to be in it. Um, we've seen over and over again politicians who think they are in a great spot try to run out the clock and ha- blow up on them. I mean, we saw Hillary Clinton arguably do that twice: 2008 and 2016. We saw Jeb Bush do that in 2016. So, what? So, where? What do you think? You're advising Joe Biden. You've advised other candidates over the years. If you were advising Joe Biden, would you say, lay low, you know, avoid places where you may, you know, get a question that throws you off course, or would you
2: tell him go out there? Why would you tell Joe Biden to participate in a media interview when the questioner is going to ask a question for I don't know eight, ten minutes, and maybe you get a sense or two to respond? That's number one. Number two is I'd say to Joe Biden. Do not hire Jonathan Carl because he's going to put you in jeopardy every single day. If you hire Jonathan Carl, and I don't know, maybe you're on the payroll already. It seems like the press like him so much that he's buying them off. Uh, Come on, Frank. No, i so, so,
1: so, so you say he should play it safe. You say you should play it safe, avoid interviews, don't do a lot of press conferences, uh, let let Trump destroy himself and 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 win by 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 lying low.
2: Uh, of course, you're going to use that kind of framing, but no, Joe Biden should be out there once a month. He should be engaging in tough so interviews. four times between M- now and November with MSNBC and CNN. He should be and and on on your programs. That he should go where he knows that he's going to receive a a, a challenge about as tough as a kids show. Now, now, obviously, I'm kidding about that. I do not need, Joe does not need, yet. Yeah, John, if you're going to ask a three-minute question, you're going to get that kind of response. Uh, Joe does not need to engage with people like you, quite frankly, because you'll hold them accountable and Rick will rip them apart. He's, when you've got this kind of lead and you've got a president who's so unpopular, I think it was Lee Atwater, Lee Atwater who said, Back in the 1980s, when he was George Bush's mastermind, when your opponent's in the process of destroying themselves, let them. If they set themselves on fire, don't put it out. And I think it's not good for the democracy. It's not good for who we are as a country. But as a political strategist, if that's the hat I have right now, then I do think that it is better for Biden to lay low, at least until September. John, The first debate is not until September 29th, the first debate is not for three months. Why jeopardize a lead that is growing? Just because a few reporters want to ask you a few questions.
1: Okay, so I will take the side of the American public and American democracy over the side of the political consultant class anytime. Um, And I would argue with you, and I will let you go on this uh, long uh, answer to your uh, answer, Um, that Joe Biden was very shaky in his early first debates for the Democratic nomination and showed and hurt his standing. He got significantly better as it went on because he was in the arena. He was not, you know, he he, he didn't have to blow the dust off him and put him out there and suddenly he's got to take, you you know, play in the big leagues. So, you know, I I get him out there. What's he afraid of? And and the American people deserve it. They deserve a candidate who's gonna answer some questions. And and John, I'll just take the side of of Frank Luntz.
0: I'll take the side of Frank Luntz who said that he is, well, he said he's impressed with with Rick Klein's analysis and would not hire (laughs) John Carl for anything. So that (laughs) that feels like he's, I feel like he's asked and answered uh, all of our questions appropriately today. Thank you, Frank. Thank all you. right
1: frank luntz even when you insult us we like having you on because we think we can learn something from you all right yeah even I, when you're I'm, wrong i'm only insulting you john rick is still hundred uh, <laughs> percent thank you frank we are going to take and by the way i'll, I'll address that after you hang up uh we are going to take <laughs> a quick break we'll be right back with powerhouse politics and senator tim scott Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We are joined now by Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina. Senator Scott, thank you for joining us.
3: It's good to be with John. Good to hear your voice again.
1: Always a pleasure to talk to you. I wanted to ask you about this. uh, uh, We're still learning more the story about the Russian, uh, you know, the the, uh, alleged Russian bounties on American troops uh, paid to the Taliban. The president tweeted suggesting that this whole thing is a hoax again. Uh, I I assume you've, you've Looked into this. I mean, what 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 is your sense?
3: Well, listen. Uh, I I have as much information. I'm going to take a uh, a look at some of the uh, classified documents later today. But my understanding is a simple one that, in the end, um, I had dinner with Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe a couple of nights ago. With one of my best friends in Washington, and I'd just say that I think the uh, the, the the White House seems to have put national security interest above their interest, uh, and I think that's the way it should be. Uh, Bottom line is I have no information that tells me that uh, they've done anything that would be inconsistent with what we would want to happen. I saw the post by Senator Lindsey Graham that says the president was briefed, and uh, I have not heard anything uh, that is contrary to that. I will say that if in fact the Russians have placed a bounty on any heads, there should be decisive, aggressive action uh, against the Russians, and we just need to uh, run that to ground.
1: But, but let me ask you though. I mean, the, the, the president's tweet on this this morning is entirely dismissive of the story. I mean, he's saying it's a hoax, and I'm seeing people like Senator Sass uh, You come out talking about how he's hearing from military families in uh, Nebraska, and that they are livid about this. I see Liz Cheney coming out of a. Uh, you know, briefing on this, uh, uh, saying that there've got to be serious consequences. The story is being taken very seriously by many of your colleagues. It does not seem to be taken seriously by the president of the United States, at least on his Twitter feed. And we certainly haven't seen anything from him uh, in public. And the White House has not delivered the message you just delivered, uh, that if this is true, the Russians have to pay consequences.
3: Yeah, John, and I'm not going to sit here and try to uh, explain the White House. Uh, I don't work at the White House. I don't work for the White House. I work for America. And I think if it's proven that Russia uh, in any way, shape or form made it more difficult for our, our men and women in theater to survive, there should be a high premium and an aggressive response or reaction to that situation. And... What the White House says in response to that is something I don't control and I don't always follow. So at the end of the day, I would just say that my perspective is that we should take ex- ex- very strong, a very clear position on this important issue.
0: I'm curious your thoughts, though, on this. The the the, 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 the defense authorization bill does include uh, language in it that would uh, force the Department of Defense to rename. Uh, bases that are uh, that, that are named after Confederate soldiers, Confederate generals. The president issued a veto threat on that today, he says he'd veto it. It's it's in the legislation as being crafted in both the House and the Senate. Do you see any possibility of it of it coming out? And and is it t- to your mind is that something that that Congress needs to work around, knowing that the president is issuing this veto threat? Is that is that something that needs to be accommodated at this point, or do you think
3: that language should stay? Well, I, you you all follow the president's tweets uh, better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that my perspective is talking to members of the SAS, Tom Cotton, and others. The uh, willingness for the DOD to study the names of the bases, I think, is, uh, makes, makes sense to me. Uh, how we come to the conclusion on bases that should be renamed, if at all, uh, is, is, is a part of that process that we should study. Uh, I think that we should move forward with the language, basically, as it is from my understanding which is that we should have a study of those bases and why they were named and then come to a conclusion on what we should do about that and i think it's uh, premature to make a decision before you see the results of the study something that i'm interested in seeing
0: you were uh, over the weekend in, in an unusual position where you you did an interview <laughs> in that uh, in the window of time where the president's uh retweet of the of the supporter yelling "White Power" was still up, and you you took I think an admirable position in saying that it should be taken down. And in fact, the the, the president did take it down a, a few hours later. I'm yes. curious from from where you sit, you know, why that felt like a moment that you needed to weigh in, and and what the process was was like. Did you have other communications with the White House about it, or was it was it just the interview and and the the ability to speak out on that moment? If that if there was something special about this that you felt like this is, this is a tweet that's worth responding to?
3: I think uh, my responsibility as it relates to the president's tweets, uh, once again, I I don't follow them like you guys follow these tweets. But what I will say is when Jake Tapper uh, sent me the tweet about five minutes before I went on the air, uh, that to me, it's just, you have to use common sense more than political instinct when it comes to making decisions of consequence. And from my perspective, the common sense approach to the president's uh, retweet at that time was not even uh, a question. If it's indefensible, it's indefensible. So just take it down. Uh, Whether the president actually saw the video in full or not is in question, but whether or not he should take it down was not a question from my perspective and one that I spoke clearly about. And I'm thankful that the White House uh, responded fairly quickly. And um, I've spoken out on a number of occasions, frankly, on things that I disagree with. And I think that to do it with, with respect is important, but to do it unwaveringly is equally as important.
1: So, I, I to to move from the president's tweets, and I am I am tempted to ask you about. I'm, I'm applauding uh, you. <laughs> <for> the president's <laughs> yes. tweets if I don't know yes. what he does, yes. but thank you. Yes, yes, yes. Let's let, let's move on to something that you do have some degree of control over, and that is your uh, your police reform legislation. Obviously yes, blocked uh, by by the Democrats. You had said that there. I think you told me on this week that, that there's basically seventy percent of of. Agreement uh, between your bill and the Democratic bill in the House. Uh, your, your bill has been blocked. Can you do something? Are there bits and pieces uh, that that can be taken out of your bill that you can reach out to uh, to to to, the, to your Democratic colleagues and, and get passed, or, or, or are we just going to have to wait until after the election on this?
3: Well, I think the worst con- <clears throat> the worst outcome is to wait until after the election on the legislation that I uh, sponsored. Uh, Mostly because it just sends such a terrible message to kids uh, who face uh, the same situation that i faced 18 times being stopped by law enforcement. But More importantly, I think about the single parents, so often the single mothers who are waiting for their kids to come home from a shift at work or, or, or hanging out with friends. I never realized how much pressure and weight was on my mother's shoulders as she waited patiently for me to come in the house before she went to sleep. And I I just did not understand that weight until really recently as we discussed some of the issues. But more importantly, I I would say this, that when you have so much in common from a base bill perspective, you should look for ways forward. I spent over an hour yesterday meeting with Karen Bass, the person who really led the charge on the police reform bill in the House. And she and she and I had a wonderful conversation, a cordial conversation. And frankly, I was more encouraged at the end of our conversation than I was when I went into the conversation. I hope that over the next couple of weeks that she will have an impact on some of the friends that she has in the Senate on the Democrat side. Because from a notification perspective, the two bills are very similar. They want more information below the serious bodily injury than I did. That's something that we could actually work towards together. We both want to find a way to recruit more minority officers. Uh, We we do it one way, they do it a different way, but that's another area of strong agreement. The use of body cameras, I I have been working on this for more than five years. So the reality of having body cameras uh, and the funding to go with body cameras, this is an area where we agree. I have penalties for not having your body cameras when it leads to serious bodily injury or death. Uh, when it comes to record preservation, they have a state database, the President's Executive Order has a national database. We preserve the records so that those records go to the state base or the the, the national database. That's another area of commonality or congruence. Uh, on de-escalation training and best practices, these are areas where we're in the same place, anti-lynching bill. I've got it passed through the Senate twice. Uh, they wanted to rename it in the House, then send it back. They they were flirted with the disaster and now we don't have an anti-lynching uh, bill that's in the bill that's another area of commonality um, use of force review boards i want to study it a little bit more so we can get the best practices they want to go straight to it i think we get to a place where we actually have that we saw become law just recently or last at least it passed the senate unanimously the commission on black men and black boys which was a part of the bill that's now heading towards the house uh, so the duty to intervene grants the trained folks another area of commonality so the truth is when you have that much in common all of that not getting to the neighborhoods and to the police departments to encourage better behavior uh, that would be a shame for us to stop short of getting that done and frankly even on qualified immunity i i'm not in a position where i'm going to negotiate on officers but i am in a position to negotiate other parts of the conversation and where we make it easier for restitution and for recourse for families to sue cities and, and counties and departments. That's something that I think is a, actually a positive and not a negative. So even on that very sensitive issue, there are working groups on both sides of the aisle. So there is a reason for us to keep our shoulders to the grindstone for the next few weeks and see if we can emerge from this uh, time back in our states with a compromise, bill uh, that uh, leads to the president's signature. If we miss this opportunity, it won't be for the lack of effort on my part, and it won't be because every member of the United States Senate Republicans were willing to move forward and give Democrats enough amendments to vote on every single difference they saw in the bill.
0: Hey, quick quickly, by means of follow-up, uh, Senator, the, the, the sure. slogans have been uh, quite something in this, and I wonder your take on this. You know, the, the president this morning saying that Black Lives Matter um, is a symbol of hate. Do you feel like the slogans around defund the police and the like have have hampered the efforts to to actually get something done?
3: Well, I will say this is my last question on the president I will answer, uh, number one. Uh, I'm not here to to defend and or comment on what he he does or doesn't say. I think that's that's a path forward that uh, is fraught with problems because I don't work for the president. Uh, I work for the American people. Uh, I do not find the black lives movement as the words themselves as problem or hateful themselves. I think the concept of defunding the police is a position of stereotyping all law enforcement officers in the same way that I, as an African-American, would hate to be stereotyped because I have been stereotyped. So I'm going to fight against stereotyping any people groups, whether they wear blue or whether they're born in black. So that's just a a position I'm going to always defend. And the question about the value of life uh, is best answered in a New York City park when the woman said she's gonna call the law enforcement on a Harvard-educated black man simply because he asked her to follow the rules of the park. That told me that she instinctively understood that her position of power, especially in the eyes of law enforcement, Was superior to the man that she threatened to call uh, the police on.
1: All right, Senator Scott. Last question. It is not about the president. Uh, It's a big question. Uh, And before I get to it, I want to read something that you uh, that that you said uh, a while back. You you you. It was actually on our podcast right before uh, the uh, inauguration in 2017. You said, there's an old scripture. This is what you told us on the Powers Politics. There's an old scripture in the book of Matthew that says, love your neighbor. Now, I would hope as leaders, we would look for ways to bring this country together from the president of the United States down to every member of Congress, to leaders of households and at the state level as well. And I see that message and I think that is a message that could resonate very strongly today. And I had a conversation over the weekend with a very senior Republican in Congress about who the leading contenders would be for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. In other words, who is next? And this person said, without missing a beat, Tim Scott. So here's <laughs> my question. Does Tim Scott, I know you've talked about possibly going and becoming a pastor after you leave the Senate. Would you consider Have you considered? Do you think it's a possibility you would run for president of the United States?
3: Well, my, my mission is to positively impact the lives of a billion people with the message of hope. It has a lot to do with my faith and opportunity, the lessons of financial literacy that I learned from my mentor. I would say that what you referred to was Matthew seven twelve. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. The best way for us to fulfill uh, our destiny as a nation is to love one another in the same way that we would be want to be loved, to treat each other in the same way that we would want to be treated. The question that I always try to answer is, can I do all that I can where I am? And is that good enough? And when the answer is yes, I continue to do right, I continue to do it right where I am. So I, I can't predict the future. What I can tell you is I think that it's easier to have a healthy reputation and a higher approval rating as a member of the clergy than it is as a member of politics. So uh, My future is unknown to me, but I don't have any designs today on running for President of the United States. I think the best thing to do is be as qualified at what you're doing and as dedicated at what you're doing and don't think beyond tomorrow because today has enough problems for me just to stay. And frankly, the the hate that I have received and the death threats and all of the things that have come up because I've worked on a bipartisan piece of legislation to make it safer in neighborhoods uh, doesn't make me want to roll back my commitment on term limits uh, in public office and especially the United States Senate. So I am thankful to be where I am. Uh, I am hopeful that God's not finished with me yet. But uh, to look that far down the road would be uh, something that I'm, I'm not planning that far down the road. I'm planning for tomorrow.
1: Well, there's a lot of wisdom in that, and I, and I hope you won't mind then, because uh, I div- definitely did not hear a no in there. But uh, if Rick <laughs> Klein and I, as, as, as we look forward, we always do this. We always look to the next election that we include Tim Scott on our list of potential candidates in 2024.
0: Until he takes it off. <laughs>
1: thank you, Senator. If you want it off, thank you very much. It's always a, a pleasure to talk to you, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Senator. So, Rick, Rick, I, seriously, I I definitely did not hear a no on the on the presidential question, but it's very early. But I will tell you that this was a rather prominent, very prominent Republican in Congress who... Did not miss a beat, in saying that Tim Scott's the guy that the Republicans should
0: put forward in the post Donald Trump era.
1: Now, I mean, God only knows, but um, but interesting.
0: And I, I think I think in the context of how he, he thinks about these, I mean, he 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 quoted scripture with us a couple of years ago, and was ready to ready to quote scripture again today. The, and we should say that the stuff that he has been facing online is disgusting. It is atrocious. It's repulsive. And Anyone in public life, we're used to getting a lot of uh, online vitriol. I think uh, a, a black Republican in Donald Trump's America, uh, the only black Republican in the United States Senate, gets it way worse. And, and, and to me, at least, I, you know, Tim Scott feels it. He gets it. He hears it. He, and it, it's, hard to, it's hard to tune that out. And the question of what you want to put yourself, your family through uh, in, in pursuing the presidency is, is, has got to be a real one. But you're right. It's it's not a question of ruling it out. And I think you know, the party post Trump win or lose is going to be in a really interesting place. It can go in a lot of different directions. And it's hard for me to imagine there not being interest in uh, in Senator Scott uh, uh, pursuing pursuing something around uh, around another elected office. Whether whether it's top of mind for him or not, it's going to be out there. Well, I'm
1: sure we'll be talking to him again uh, before too long. Uh, I think one of the one of the more uh, interesting people in public life and I think we learn from them when we have them on the podcast Rick, uh, that is all the time we have now, I don't know where Trevor Hastings is, but we somehow managed to do this show without him, Susie Liu uh, did a phenomenal job uh, as the acting uh, senior chief, major producer of this podcast and of course Avery Miller, uh, we wouldn't we wouldn't do it without her, because we couldn't,
0: Indeed. am I right? We couldn't, we actually couldn't, you're exactly right about that job
1: All right, we'll be back next week with Powerhouse Politics.